We're back in James. Um, I'm pumped to be here. We're gonna. This is like this is the time where we get into God's Word. We open the Bible. We see what it has to say about reality and about uh, about us, and we try and apply it to, to our life. And so we're back in the Book of James. We've been in James. We have this theme that we're going through: the Handbook to Hypocrisy. Uh, we talk a lot about hypocrisy culturally and applying it to God's Word. Uh, we want to do what we say we believe. We want to live out of our faith and belief. And so James is really, really intent on helping us with that. Um, and so we're back in the book of James as Alan Sanchez read for us, uh, 13 through 18. Um, how many of you guys have ever read or uh, like read a spark notes for a class of George Orwell's Animal Farm? Only a couple of you? Okay. Um, yeah, so George Orwell is a writer in, in the 20th century. He's like one of the most like famous political and um, commentators through fiction. But he had this one book. Um, well, he had two books that are like hyper famous. You've probably heard of 1984. But his other really, really famous one is this smaller little novelette kind of called Animal Farm. And this, this, this book is uh, it's, it's really short and it's about this farm with all these animals. And this farm has, I know, shocker, right? Animals in Animal Farm. Um, <laughs> There's, a, uh, there's all these animals on this farm, and, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a farmer, and his, I think his name is Mr. Jones, and he's this drunk, violent, angry guy that kind of abuses all these animals. Um, and so what happens is um, these animals get together and have this like meeting. Yes, there's talking animals in this allegorical story. They get this meeting, and one of their leaders, um, old major, he's like a boar, uh, he has this like vision for a farm free of oppression where all animals are equal. They're not oppressed by the, the ruling class of the humans. And so uh, he has this vision and he shares it and this ideology that they develop and they call it animalism. And it's like the, whole, the basic ideal is all animals are equal. And so um, a couple days later, this guy like dies. And so there's these three pigs because pigs are apparently the most intelligent of all animals. And so there's these three pigs that like step into this leadership role. Um, they're named uh, Squealer, Squealer, Snowball, and Napoleon. And they, these three pigs kind of step into this leadership role. I know Squealer's an awesome name for a pig. They step into this leadership role, and they start this movement amongst the animals to like run the farmer off the farm, and they end up running him off the farm. And so then it's just this farm for a, a brief period of time of just like this harmonious existence. And it lasts for a little while. But what ends up happening is uh, two of these three pigs... They end, up, uh, getting, they end up getting a little power hungry and they end up taking this authoritarian kind of tyrannical role amongst the, the farm. And so where there was this big movement of all animals are equal, these, these pigs, it's, it's uh, Napoleon, who's kind of like the ringleader. He's like the antagonist in this story. He ends up taking this like authoritarian, tyrannical, oppressive role. And so throughout the story, we see like different instances of him being this, this tyrannical ruler. Um, and then by the end, they end up running off Snowball, who actually Snowball was one of like, the, the idealistic, we can all be equal, and they end up running him off because they disagree with him. Anyways, the, um, at, by the end of the story, uh, it's after a couple of years, these pigs, the, the, the ones that are left in the, ruling these, this farm, they end up walking on two legs, and they end up meeting with these humans. They end up living in the manor. They, en they end up participating in the exact oppression that they sought to overthrow at the beginning. And so the point of the story is kind of, um, in Orwell's ideal was a critique of Joseph Stalin, the communist ideal in Soviet Russia. But for us tonight, I think it's really, really helpful because what we're going to be talking about tonight is motive. We're going to be talking about motivation and the heart. And what is it that motivates you 
and moves you to achieve and to know. And so in that story, we see, we see, we see exemplified some of the things we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, and that, that's kind of exactly what we're going to be talking about. This, this picture of two different kinds of people. One whose motives are rooted in the humility of the gospel and one whose motives are rooted in selfish ambition and self-reliance and pride and jealousy. And so James is going to talk about those two ideals in the context of wisdom tonight. We're going to be talking about wisdom tonight. And I want to read once again the passage that Alan read for us, James 3, 13 through 18. Um, and then just listen for those ideals we talked about. So J- James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. So who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so let's talk about wisdom really quick, because this is a theme, like, James is known as the book of wisdom, um, and it's a, it's a word that's shown up a lot in the book of James so far. Um, and we've talked a little bit about the ideal of wisdom, right? We've talked about how, um, um, well, actually, first, let's, let's go here. That question, that first question in that first verse, what, who is wise and understanding among you? Kind of a rhetorical question, right? Because how many of us, like, there's not a lot of people that are like, yeah, I don't want to be wise, <laughs> Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to be sharp, wise, and understanding, and and, and smart, and, and and intelligent. I'm, I'm going for moron. <laughs> That's what I'm shooting at. Right? Nobody's like that, right? He asks this rhetorical question, and everyone's like, "Oh, I, I want, I want that to be me. I want to be wise. I want to be sharp. I want to know how, what to do in the right situations." And so James asks this question: Who is wise and understanding among you? And all of us will be like, "We want to be that person." Um, and a little bit of context for that question that James is asking. Remember last week we talked about the tongue, right? The tongue's connection to the heart, our speech. Look back to the very first verse and a half we read last week in James chapter three, verses one. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And so this question that James is asking comes on the tail end of James talking about speech and our connection of how we talk and how we, um, how we communicate with people, the connection to our heart. James is then asking about wisdom, who is wise among you, right? And so this whole, the context of this question that James asks is in referring to like people in leadership, in roles of authority, in roles of teaching. And um, he says at the very beginning, right, not many of you should become teachers. And so he says, check one, what, what kind of speech do you have? And then he exposes the connection between speech and the heart. And really what he's after in those verses, as we saw last week, is the heart, right? And so then he goes into this text about wisdom. And we're going to see today again, check two, like, what, what, who is understanding and wise? Who do you look to as your authorities and, your, and, and the people that teach you? Well, he's at, we're going to see tonight, he's after the heart again. So all of this, and all the, that, that question of, of should you be an authority, should you be a teacher, James is really what he's getting after is the heart here. Um, so, again, what does, 
no one wants to be an idiot, right? So what does it mean to have wisdom? Well, we've used this kind of working definition before in the book of James of, like, we can know things, right? And so just knowing something, like memorizing the periodic table or knowing the, um, like, a molecular, molecular structure of some molecule, <laughs> uh, you can know those things. That's not wisdom, right? Wisdom is knowing, not just knowing truth, but wisdom is the application of truth, Right? And so that's what we're talking about tonight when we use the word wisdom is we're talking about the application of truth. We can know things. You remember two weeks ago, James commends this, like, you know truth, you do well, but even the demons believe, right? You guys remember that? Wisdom is the application of truth, not just the understanding of it. Um, and so that's tonight we are getting after, uh, we're not gonna have like a thesis statement tonight. We're gonna have kind of three little, um, I guess you could call them uh, parts of wisdom we're gonna be talking about. And the first part of wisdom we're going to be after is the heart of wisdom, and that's in James 3, 13 through 14. Let's read it again. So who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So in these first couple of verses, we get our first, the first part of wisdom James is after, and that's the heart of wisdom. Um, and now we've talked a lot this semester, and James, like throughout the whole book, talks a lot about the connection between uh, our belief and then our behavior, right? Constantly talking about uh, uh, works without faith is dead. And so the ideal is works and faith have this inter, this inextricable connection, right? And so uh, he's talked about be doers of the word, not just hearers only, right? And so there's this, James, there's this like saturated in the book of James, this, this assumption that what we believe in part, dictates how we behave. And so James's exposition in this text tonight is describing the relationship between our base beliefs and the kind of wisdom that we walk in, how we apply truth to our life, how we apply what we know to our life. But James's point is, again, we saw it right in there. He's after the heart. It always starts with the heart. It always starts with belief and with these base presuppositions, big words for like base truths, these base presuppositions that we have about life, reality, ourselves, God, creation, everything really. And it always starts with something internal inside of us. It always starts with what we believe. And so add the language that the Bible always uses to talk about this or often uses to talk about this is the heart just like we saw in our text again. So read one, once more with me that um, text in 3 through 13. And what we're going to see is what James is going to do throughout this whole passage is he's going to put side by side godly wisdom and worldly wisdom, wisdom from above and wisdom from below. And so see if you can identify the two kinds, of, the two hearts of wisdom in here. So read with me once again. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. And so we see right here, a contrast, right? Two different hearts, two different hearts after we have the first, the meek heart of humility, right? Meekness of wisdom. And then we have a boasting heart of pride and selfish ambition. And James says that true godly wisdom is meek, it's humble. In other words, what we're gonna see is that 
at the heart of wisdom is gospel humility. And let me prove that to you. Look back to James 121 with me. Um, at the beginning of the semester, we read this verse. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And that same word, right? Meekness. It's that same word we saw before. Meekness. See, James says the same kind of humility that is present in the heart of wisdom is the same kind of humility that is present with the implanted word that saves your souls. The same humility that gives us wisdom is the same humility that's in our salvation. Now, I don't know if you guys, um, uh, Philippians 2 is one of my like, favorite chapters in the Bible. And in Philippians 2, Paul, the writer of it, is talking about Jesus, but he's talking about Jesus in the context of, of his selflessness and his humility. Paul goes on to describe the gospel in how uh, um, Jesus was existing in this, this beautiful perfection with God the Father and God the Spirit. Like, uh, as Christians, we believe in the Trinity, right? And so God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, and they were existing in this perfect, harmonious existence, and Jesus removed himself from that and entered into this frail flesh that we live in and then lived on this earth, experienced all the temptation and all of the brokenness and all of the sickness that we do. And in that selfless humility... Jesus set aside everything that he had to enter this existence for us and then die for us and suffer for us. And so Paul explains the gospel in that context of Jesus' humility to make the point and to illustrate that the, the character of a heart changed by the gospel of Jesus will reflect that, hum, that humble selflessness. The same humble selflessness that drove Jesus to set aside all of that everything that he had with the divine father and enter into the broken flesh of humanity is the same kind of selflessness that as Christians we should walk in. Again, James is saying that the same humility that characterizes the gospel is the same humility that should characterize our wisdom, meaning that wisdom begins with a humble with, the, with humble adoration of the gospel and then living inside of that humility. The meekness of wisdom is idealized when you can set aside your preferences and your comforts and your own needs and your own desires for the sake of others. That's understanding what Jesus did and then applying it to ourselves. James says the heart of wisdom starts with humility, meekness. The meekness of wind, wisdom is humbly laying aside your life for others. Does that make sense? Does that yeah, you get that? Because James is going to next put next to that what wisdom is not. He's going to tell us what wisdom is not. So read with us uh, 3.14 again. This is verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Uh, now, on that animal farm in Orwell's classic, there were a lot of animals that were after the good of their peers, right? Um, the old, old, old major, like, he, he, was, he had this vision for a free animal farm. There was this horse that, like, uh, I forget the name of the horse, but the horse was, would work tirelessly from dusk till dawn because he was stronger and more powerful than all these other animals, and he would lay down his day after day after day for the good of the farm. Eventually, he'd give his life for the farm. 
And so I just want to ask you, um, sorry, did you rewind? I just skipped like a section, forgive me. On that farm, along with those this selfless, humble horses and sheep and old major were the pigs, right? The pigs that ended up just lusting for power. The pigs were just after themselves. The pigs that ended up being like the humans, walking on two legs, living in the manor and oppressing the rest of the farm. It wasn't humility and meekness and the good of others that they were after. It, they were after is selfish ambition, right? James tells us that is not what wisdom is. Gospel wisdom is walking in humility and meekness. So let me ask you this now. What moves you to achieve here at school? What drives you to do well in your classes and to get your degree and to strive for a career and to have successful relationships? There are a lot of people in this world that, um, actually, I'd, I'd imagine most people in this world um, that what the reason that they're striving for excellence, and I think this is a lot of us at times, the reason that we strive for excellence is not the good of those around us, but it's for our own good. It's the phrase that James uses twice in here to radically, radically subvert the idea of worldly wisdom. It's selfish ambition. Politics, pop culture, academia, business, all of it is rife with individuals after their own good. It's selfish ambition. And it's not like, it's not like we're sitting here like, I just, I'm going to get all of my money, or I'm going to get my job so I can get all of my money and not be generous or kind to people. It's not like I'm living in this space where I'm just a, a total jerk. There are people like that, right? But, but there's this idea that um, even those efforts at um, kindness and goodness, they serve us in some way. This is a whole idea, a philosophical ideal in, in, in the modern age. And, and, and the point is, is that it's not just, we're not just after the money, we're after the satisfaction, we're after the comfort, we're after the security, we're after the joy. And so oftentimes, being kind to somebody or being generous to a friend or helping a friend move, that can bring us satisfaction. Like we did something good, that was fulfilling. That was comforting, and that felt good. And so we're not really after their good, we're after our satisfaction and comfort and joy. Does that make sense? Yes? Great. No one's asleep yet? Sweet. So the point is, is that what James is saying moves a lot of us to positions of power and teaching and authority and to want to achieve and strive for excellence in school and whatever is our own selfish ambitions and our own desires. And next week, we're gonna look at desires and how it's not just what moves us often, it's, it is the source of so much of the conflict in our world. It's your desires coming into conflict with my desires because I want what I want and you want what you want, and it's, there's a war there. And so let me ask one more time, what, what drives you to achieve in school? Why are you here When that question is asked in James, who is wise and understanding among you, why is it that you want to raise your hand? In other words, what is in your heart? Is it the humility 
of the gospel that would lay down its life for the sake of Jesus and the good of those around you? Or is it the selfish personal satisfaction and ambition that would crush those around you? See, the heart of wisdom is a gospel humility. So if you're after wisdom, if you want to raise your hand when that question is asked, then you should strive for humility that is found in the gospel of Jesus. So moving on to the next part of our text tonight, verses I want to read verses 15 in, well, uh, actually we're going to read 13 through 15 in, in James 3. So who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Verse 15 is where we're getting the next part of our, 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 our ideal of wisdom today. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. He's talking about the selfish ambition wisdom, but it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So in the heart of wisdom, we saw two different kinds of motivations behind that wisdom, behind that striving for excellence or achievement or leadership or authority. We saw, we saw the humble meekness of gospel humility, and we saw the selfish ambition of pride and arrogance. And they come from two different places. They're two different kinds of um, motivate, right? So they come from two different places, and that's what we're going to see right now, the source of wisdom. We see two different places that wisdom comes from. We see wisdom from above, and we see wisdom from below. Um, so first, wisdom from above. We, we've, we've seen that in James before, that phraseology, right, from above. Look back with me to verse, or chapter 1, verses 17. Uh, James says this uh, when talking about goodness. Every good and perfect gift comes from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So when James says that that wisdom is not wisdom from above, talking about the bad kind of wisdom, which isn't really wisdom at all, he's saying wisdom comes from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. The wisdom of God comes from God. The meek and humble heart of wisdom comes from above, it comes from God. Throughout scripture, we see this idea of God being the source of goodness, the source of everything that is good, as we just read. Um, we also see God being the agent of change in the human heart. And so when James says wisdom comes from above, it's not just that God is the source of wisdom and that wisdom is shining down upon us and we can grab pieces here and there, but it's that God is intricately involved in our hearts to change us and reorient us. In Romans, God, excuse me, in Romans, the Bible talks about how uh, God has hardened and softened different hearts throughout history to accomplish his purposes, ultimately leading to the gospel. Um, Jesus talks about uh, those that are his followers and his disciples are only those which God the Father has given him. Um, in Ezekiel and Daniel, we see this idea of heart change where God gives the Christian an actually new heart. Uh, instead of a heart of stone, a hard, broken heart, God gives a heart of flesh. And I think this, this is clear for us in, in, um, in James 3.15. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. I, we get scared when we see that last word sometimes, right? Like demonic. That kind of freaks us out a little bit, yeah? Like, I don't know what you guys think about, but when I was in college, there was this movie uh, is called Paranormal Activity. Oh, it, yeah, no, ew. 
I hate horror movies in general. And the only reason I went and saw this is because you weren't cool if you saw it, and all the dudes that I hung out with like forced everyone around them to go or they were super lame. Anyways, it's one of those movies that's like, you can't watch it alone and you have to like, it's so much better in a movie theater because there's people around you. They can't, like, you're not gonna get murdered, right? And so there's this movie, Paranormal Activity, and it's horrifying and terrifying. Um, You wouldn't wanna hang out alone anywhere, like for a week, like you couldn't sleep because you had these night, anyways. Moving on. The, uh, right here when James says demonic, he's not talking about randomly moving objects or killer clowns. I shouldn't have said that. That was creepy. I creeped myself out. <laughs> look, look back with me to a, a previous time in James where he talks about demons. Look at James 2, verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. That's, what, what, what was he talking about there? Do you guys remember? We, just, we referenced it a little bit, a little bit ago. He's talking about the difference between knowing something and then believing it as, 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 as faith. Like even the demons know and believe that God is true. They, they know God exists. They know that Jesus exists. The gospel is true. They don't care. They don't want to apply it. They don't need it. They don't think they, they don't want it. Right? And so James, what James is talking about is, um, well, we'll see what James is talking about. Go to uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 um, through 6, I believe. Or 3 through 4. I didn't mark this one, so bear with me. Yeah, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3, um, yeah, 3 and 4. Verse 3 says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. What Paul's talking about here is like those that can't see the gospel for what it is, as the gospel of Jesus says salvation. Um, In their case, the people that can't see, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so we see this idea that it's God who shines a light into, the broken, into our broken hearts. It's God who lifts the veil from our eyes. And you see what is truly evil, the idea of demons and stuff, wherever you land there, that, that's what is truly evil is the great lie, the wisdom from below that Adam and Eve believed in the garden. That we, that you and I, that I am enough. It's the great lie that my own reason, my own understanding, my own creativity, my own uh, attempts at morality and goodness or collective attempts at achieving in this world are enough to satisfy whatever brokenness and whatever frailty and whatever failure exists in this world. The kind of wisdom that James is talking about here that isn't actually wisdom is the kind that says, I don't need God. I can be like God with that fruit. The kind of wisdom that James is talking about here is earthly. What is unspiritual, what is demonic, is the kind of wisdom that says, I don't need God. Now, we're gonna spend like two minutes, hopefully, in, I wanna talk a little bit of philosophy, okay? So please stay awake. I promise it'll be short. Um, But we've talked about this idea uh, a couple times here, and at workshop about postmodernism. Yeah, you guys remember that stuff. Yep. So there's this idea um, that um, we've lost in postmodern thought, and that's transcendence. We've lost this idea that there's something above us that is beyond us that we can use as a measure or a meter for meaning or a measure or meter for truth. 
okay? And so that's kind of, that, that, that's an ideal that we've lost in postmodern thought. And so what, what um, I've shared this quote with you guys, I think some of you guys, I shared it at Omnos, it's freaking awesome. Uh, it, the quote goes like this, we have moved from the muffled majesty of grand narratives into the stifled autonomy, or the m- fractured autonomy of micro-narratives. We've moved from the muffled majesty of grand narratives to the stifled autonomy of micro-narratives. That just basically means the idea that with the loss of transcendence, with the loss of something above us, of something beyond us, of something bigger and greater and better than us, the only way we measure ourselves is against ourselves. And so we silo ourselves off in our experiences, and so what brings meaning to our life, what the standards we hold ourselves to are like the, are, are siloed into our own experiences. Does that make sense? Kind of, maybe, hopefully. Um, there's, so like if you guys have heard the phrase, uh, my truth, that's not true for me. That might be true for you, yeah? yeah I, I mean, I've said it before, right? That, that's kind of the ideal is that there's no grand truth. There's only my truth. And so we've lost this very ideal of trans- transcendence um, and it's paved the way for this ideal that what matters most is our personal experiences. But, but I don't think that that loss of that like big philosophical idea is really the problem. I don't. I think it's just a symptom of the problem. Because the previous like, like generation of thinkers um, up until that point, it's kind of been shaped by the Enlightenment. If you've taken a humanities course, you've probably read or heard about this, right? Like, uh, the Enlightenment was this movement, this intellectual and philosophical movement that was like, it held human reason and the scientific method as like the beginning and the end of like everything. And so there was this transcendence, but was transcendent were these truths that we can observe, that we can experience through our reason, and through the scientific method. Does that make sense? So there's still transcendence. It was just what was placed as transcendent was reason, was science. And so the point that I'm I'm trying to make with this deep dive into philosophy is it isn't just our postmodern philosophy and the ways that we um, are experiencing academia and culture today. It, the, the problem isn't this, this siloed off personal experience, um, narrative, micro-narrative that we live, but it's, it's what, what is transcendent to you? What is it that you're placing as transcendent? Because most of the Enlightenment thinkers lost the idea of God it's the death of God. It's the problem with both of those, the problem with all thought that, finds it, that doesn't find its source of, um, uh, that doesn't have the, those transcendent God. The problem is that we're looking for it in us. Human reason, human science, our own experience, our own culture, our own creativity. You see, that's the problem, is because we are the problem. That is why Jesus needed to descend from his divine perfect place with God, because broken people can't fix broken people. Wisdom from below says, I can solve my problems. We can solve our problems through whatever means that we can come up with. And it rejects the idea that God is necessary 
to help and for us to understand. This is why we need God's word so desperately because the Bible is the transcendent God of the universe saying in our own language simply, this is truth and transcendent truth. That's why we need God's word so badly. It's the transcendent God coming down and communicating to us. And so what James is saying here, the source of wisdom isn't in you. It's not in the enlightenment or in reason. It's not in your own experiences. The source of wisdom is God. True wisdom comes from God. See, even then though, right, we have this, we have this, this book from God, right? So we can, we can all like read this, right? We can all, get up, we can all open our Bibles and read God's word. and okay, we, Anyone can read it. But even then, if we can all, some of us can't see still, right? That verse we read in 2 Corinthians, the God of this world has blinded the minds. We can't see. It's not just that God gave us this, this objective source of truth, but it's also that God has to intimately change and reorient our hearts from self-reliant, ambitious, prideful things to truly gospel, humble, meek hearts. See, the only way that we can have a heart of humility, a heart of humble wisdom, is if God opens, if God himself opens our eyes to the realities of who he is reorienting and changing our hearts. James's whole point is that it starts with Jesus. It starts with the gospel. It starts with our own hearts, the brokenness of our hearts, the perfection of Jesus. What is it are you relying on? Perfection of Jesus, perfection of the transcendent God of the universe, or your own frail, fallen, broken, insert here. So James has shown us the heart of true wisdom as humble and meek, not selfish and ambitious. Um, he's shown us the source of true wisdom, which is God above, not in, in, in us ourselves, what is earthly, what is unspiritual. And then finally, what James is going to describe for us, what are the two different characters produced by those different wisdoms? Look with James 3, 16 through 18 with me. The end of our text tonight. Oh, that's 2 Corinthians. 16 through 18, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. See, James has carved these two paths for us, wisdom from above and wisdom from below. And the end of our text tonight kind of the same idea, we've been hammering and hammering and hammering in James. And it's what we talked about at the beginning. It's what you believe is gonna shape your behavior. What you think and believe, what you have faith in, is gonna shape how you interact with the world and those around you. And James is saying for us, the same is true for speech last week, and the same is true for wisdom and understanding and applying truth. And so God, what James is saying is that gospel humble, truly gospel humble wisdom is gonna be marked by these attributes. Those attributes that we read, peaceable, um, um, excuse me, peaceable, uh, impartial, 
uh, open to reason, these, these, these characteristics that James sets aside, that's the kind of life that a gospel-humble, Christ-God-sourced wisdom is going to live. And I think, like, this kind of begs the question, right? If you have this vile deceit, and, or this vile disordered deceit that wisdom from below walks in, and this like these exemplified virtues that wisdom from above walks in, well, what do you do with the fact that people can produce good and be good and have those virtues while not giving a crap about the God of the universe? What do you do with that? Well, I think the, just kind of two, thing, two ways we see this. I think first, we see it a lot with like uh, people that we, we say have fallen away from the church, right? People that have, we use the phrase backsliding, People that have maybe grew up in the church, maybe they're part of the church. Um, there's probably some of us in this room. Because we're a part of the church, we, we grew up knowing all these things, learning all these things, sitting in Bible classes and Sunday schools. And then uh, at some point, uh, the mask falls off because it's really nothing we actually ever believed. It was kind of what we did for whether that was kind of the, the friends you had. So you did what your friends did, or it was what your parents wanted, so you did what your parents wanted, or you thought maybe this, there's utility to it, like it can bring me something, so I'm going to do it. Uh, but at some point, we so often see the mask fall off. That's what we saw with Napoleon and the rest of the pigs in Animal Farm, right? They weren't really after the equality of the farm. At the end, they had this, the, the ideal of animalism was uh, all animals are equal. At the end, the pigs changed that ideal to all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. So the idea, we can't maintain the goodness of God. You can't maintain the fruit of a life lived in the wisdom of God without at the heart a humble sourced wisdom in the gospel of Jesus. See, history is littered with the masks of the self-deceived Christian. I think that uh, something Johnny said last week, right? He's talking about trees. You remember that, the fig trees and the olive trees? First of all, he's super wrong. Olives are amazing. Yeah, all my olive peeps. I freaking love olives. Olives are amazing. Anyways, the point is, he, he made this, he, I think it was him and Tyler that were talking, and, and that he made the point that how exhausting and how hard and how frustrating must it be for a fig tree that's told, man, you got to make some olives. <laughs> how hard is that? How frustrating? And so what's, what's the olive do? the olive. What's the fig tree do? Well, he's got to grab some olives and throw it on his tree. There's an author named Paul Tripp, and he calls this fruit stapling. It's like, I'm a fig tree, but man, I'm going to staple some other fruits to my tree so that it looks like I'm an olive tree, right? I think a lot of us, I mean, I know I grew up doing a lot of fruit stapling. I, didn't, I grew up in the church. I grew up going to Christian school, and I didn't become a Christian until I was 20 years old. I grew up doing a lot of fruit stapling, and it's exhausting, I think the other way that we can object to that idea of um, um, our lives being lived out of our faith and belief, so how can, how can goodness come from people that you know, don't exemplify a, a Christian ideal? Well, I, th I think part of the answer to that, I mean, I, I just ask, like, what ideal, what's good to culture? Like, how, how often in the last, say, decade has what is morally good shifted? Now think about all of human history, 
Like how often has what is what were sacred ideals of the past become scarlet letters of the now? Like like strength and power in war was this this held up standard of of goodness in so many cultures throughout history, and now we eschew that idea. How often does, is 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 morality and goodness culturally a moving target? Right, it's just constantly shifting, and I think. Even beyond that, okay, James's point here isn't so much that that uh, excuse me that an unredeemed heart can't produce good, but that a redeemed heart will inevitably produce good. James is talking to Christians, right? This is a letter to churches. It's not that good can't because God can do anything, right? God can do anything through anybody. What James is saying: the Christian, the heart the truly gospel humble, meek heart rooted in the gospel of Jesus, the source of wisdom is inevitably going to produce those character traits we talked about. Now, I just want to close with this. We spent this evening um, in like an isometric like focus comparing wisdom from above and wisdom, wisdom from below. But I want to zoom out just real quick uh, kind of to the context of all of chapter three, what Johnny talked about last week and what we're talking about this week. How does he open the, um, how does he open chapter three? We talked about it over there. Not many of you, talking to these Christians, should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. Now, so there's definitely a, a case here where James, James is talking to leaders to a degree. He's talking to people that are going to be teaching and, and ex, ex teaching God's word and teaching what it means to follow Jesus. But let me just ask you, have you ever heard the Great Commission that Jesus gave? At the end of Matthew, Jesus tells his disciples, go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey. I think some of us can read this and be like, oh, those are, those are good and I can, I, can, I can strive for gospel-sourced humble wisdom, for humility, for meekness, and I could strive to like hold my tongue and wash my tongue, but really that's for like, you know, the, 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 my professor and our pastors, and that's not me. If you follow Jesus, if you claim to be a disciple of Jesus, he's commanded you to go into all the world to evangelize, to disciple, and to teach. Which means that the ideal for wisdom isn't exclusive to any pastor. It's not exclusive to anyone um, in a position of authority or ruler or leader. The ideal for wisdom is for everybody. It's for anyone that would call themselves Christian. And so as we try and understand what James is talking about as um, in the heart of wisdom, the source of wisdom, and the character of what those two look like, I think what he would encourage us to do as a final point of application is to assess our hearts. Start where James started. So I'm gonna ask again, what moves you to achieve? Why do you want to be a lawyer or a doctor or in politics or whatever? Why do you want to achieve? Is it the humility of knowing that everything good and everything wise comes from God 
the author of your salvation, and then walking in that same self-sacrificial, humble selflessness that Jesus did? Because you know you can lay down yourself for other people for the good and love and care of other people? Or is it ambition rooted in selfish achievement? See, James actually isn't after assessing our fruit. Like, we should be assessing our fruit. Like, how are we following through with what we believe? But in our text tonight, James is after our hearts. So what is it that moves you? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you um, once again for an evening on a college campus to open your word, um, to try and understand the transcendent truth of who you are and who we are and the character of what makes someone wise, where it comes from. Lord, I pray that as we try and understand how to apply truth to our life, Lord, that our first and primary concern would be with the gospel of Jesus that is exemplified in humility and then in following suit and walking in humility ourselves. Lord, I pray that what marks the Christians in this room would be self-sacrifice. That it would be setting aside of preferences and desires and themselves for the good of others, walking in the works of the meekness of the wisdom of God. Lord, I pray that as we assess ourselves that we aren't too burdened by how we fail and how we're broken, but Lord, that we find confidence that in our imperfections, we can rely not on ourselves, not on our own abilities, but on the perfection of Jesus and your gospel. So Lord, we need you to understand. We need you to be wise. In your name we pray, amen.